0: Welcome everyone to the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where garden nerds from around the world talk, shop, share stories, and offer their favorite tip. I'm your host, Christy Wilhelmy. My guest this week is Kim Flottam, a well-known beekeeper who's been working with bees for more than 40 years. He's been a USDA researcher, a vegetable farmer, and the editor of Bee Culture Magazine. He has also written more than six books, including his latest, which was co-written with Stephanie Bruno, and it's called Common Sense Natural Beekeeping: Sustainable, Bee-Friendly Techniques to Help Your Hives Survive and Thrive. Thanks for being here, Kim.
1: Well, Christy, thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about bees.
0: Yeah, it is. And I, uh, I I'm not wearing my my favorite bee shirt, which says "Education is important, but beekeeping is importanter."
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: <laughs> I, I saw that at a bee conference and had to get it. Uh, but so when I, before I started beekeeping your book, the backyard beekeeper was the very first book that I picked up. And I was expecting to have plenty of time to learn about bees and research, and then set up my hive and everything. And then a swarm showed up. And so much like being an unexpected Parent, I read your book as a crash course because, you know, I suddenly had bees on my hands and I didn't know what to do with them. So, how did beekeeping get started for you? Did they find you or did you find them?
1: Well, it's kind of an interesting story. I, um, my, my life in science began with plants. I'm a horticulture major from the University of Wisconsin. And for several years, I worked for an entomologist at the university. He needed insects to test uh, his, his, um, his contr- insect controls with, but he needed the plants to grow them on. And that's where I came in. So I grew the plants and he grew the insects and he did the research. so uh, for four years, I, I worked with that. And part of that work was working alongside the USDA research people at, at Madison So for several years, I grew the plants for his research and he grew the bugs for his research. And we got along quite well until I graduated and then I had to leave that job. But for all of those years, I've been working alongside the USDA honeybee research lab people there in Madison, and they had a big project on pollination and they knew bees and beekeeping, but they didn't know plants very well. So I moved from one entomology department to another entomology department growing plants for the beekeepers. And the second day on the job, my new boss said to me, oh, by the way, you have to learn how to keep bees to have this job. This isn't only a, this isn't only a, a growing plant job. So come on, put on your bee suit. Let's go. And I'd been watching these guys for several years. And I said, how hard can this be? <laughs> So we walked out back and there was a beehive and he and one of his uh, uh, researchers were there and they applied a little bit of smoke and he opened the top and I took one look in and I took a deep breath and if you've ever smelled the inside of a beehive, you know what heaven smells like Mm -hmm. and that was 45 years ago and I haven't changed. I never went back.
0: Yeah, that is a particular smell inside a beehive. And uh, mine is one of, well, we have one hive and it's parked outside the window of my, we have a back office. And so you can just, it gets wafts in through the window. It's such a wonderful smell. So I feel like beekeeping is very different depending on where you live. Now you're on the East coast. I'm in Southern California. We have probably very different things that we have to take care of when it comes to beekeeping. Keeping. So, where are you located, and what does your hive yard look like?
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I started keeping bees, like I said, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is in southern Wisconsin. And in between there, and and now, I've lived in Austin, Texas, and then I lived in Connecticut, and and that's where I was farming. And now I'm in Northeast Ohio, not far from Cleveland. So where I learned to keep bees in Wisconsin and where I'm keeping bees now in, in uh, Ohio is very similar. We have four distinct seasons, summer, winter, spring, and fall. Mm-hmm. We have snow in the winter and we have hot weather in the summer and whatever in between. Uh, so, But my experience in Connecticut uh, was good because that's a little bit different. But that, I am in the North, not quite Northeast, but it's essentially Northeast Ohio and we have four definite seasons each year.
0: Got it. And are you having to insulate your hives over winter or are they kind of fending for themselves? How does that work for you?
1: Well, there you go. There's this (laughs) book you just mentioned. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) When I first started keeping bees, the the research done at, at Madison had looked at wintering bees successfully, and they were wintering them in the standard wooden boxes. They were grouping them together on pallets and groups of four and wrapping the four in insulation Mm -hmm. and covering the top. And it was quite successful, but it was a lot of work. And the bees were still living in a wooden box that needed insulation. Mm -hmm. So uh, over the years, I guess you'd say I kind of followed what everybody else was doing because I was busy doing other things, trying to get caught up with the rest of the world but wintering has always been a challenge for bees and beekeepers when you put them in that wooden box. Mm -hmm. Wooden box has an R factor of about Mm -hmm. 0.5 and your house is a lot warmer than that, I'm gonna guess, even even in Southern California. So the uh, the bees naturally choose, given a choice, a bee will choose a hollow tree over a wooden box probably 98 times out of 100. And there's several reasons for that. One of the reasons is the shape of the space inside of a tree. It's spherical. It's not spherical. It's elongated spherical. It's got an R value of anywhere from 8 to 10. Mm -hmm. And it has a small opening on the bottom, and it has no opening on the top. So you don't get a draft coming in the bottom and going out the top all winter long like you do in the wooden boxes that beekeepers use. Mm And you've got, it's insulative value is good. You have cool air coming into that tree. It, it moves through the hive, the outside of that cavity, um, the outside, the inside walls of that cavity are cooler than the cluster in the tree. And you will get some water condensing on those walls. So bees have water all winter long. They don't have to go outside looking for it. And they don't have it raining down on them, cold, wet water in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And a, a researcher at Cornell University named Dr. Tom Seeley uh, spent most of his career pointing out the obvious. And, and it took me some time to absorb what he was pointing out. And one, you have one of those eureka moments when you go, Well, of course. Mm-hmm.
0: So you have, you do illustrate in the book, there are different. Types of hives, and I'm going to come back to this question in a minute. But just to continue, how are you implementing maybe these other types of hives or different ways of keeping the bees happy over winter?
1: Well, mostly what I've done is work with people who use them. Mm-hmm. I don't have nine, 19 odd hives out back. I have, <laughs> okay. two, I have two hives out back that have done quite well, quite well this winter, it turns out. But I've worked with people who invented these hives, who have taken that initial design and perfected it or changed it or adapted it to other locations and and working with them, talking with them and my co-author, Stephanie Brunau, who really knows these hives. We have taken a look at the, uh, the advantages of these designs, what they offer bees that a standard Langstroth box doesn't, what they offer the beekeeper that a standard Langstroth hive doesn't and tried to adapt the best of both Mm -hmm. so that the bees are as good as they can be and the beekeeper's job is as easy as it can be.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it it was, it was that, that moment when I was looking at those thinking, Oh yeah, of course, that makes sense. Now I'm here in Southern California where we don't have to insulate hives at all. And our winter is everyone else's spring. So our dearth is in the summer, but we have a flowering Brazilian pepper tree and a community garden with 500 plots less than a mile away. So there's always something for our bees to eat in our neighborhood. So we don't really worry about that. Or I know, right? But okay, so but I'm gonna guess that you since you were a vegetable farmer, do you grow vegetables? Now? Do you have space to grow vegetables? What's that like for you?
1: I have a garden. And I'm going to be perfectly honest, here's, here's a major factor in my life, for a lot of things, and one of them is getting older, right? And a lot of the hives that you're looking at in that book, there's not a lot of lifting. Mm -hmm. And some of them there are. On the Langstroth boxes that I have, there's a lot of lifting. So I've adapted my boxes to be much smaller and much lighter weight. The same with my gardening. My gardening, when I was farming, I was living in Connecticut and we were running a corporate farm and we had apple orchards and cows and chickens and and, and crops and vegetables, a lot of vegetable, row crop vegetable crops and when i was that age it was easy doing a lot of lifting and 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 all of that now i'm much less willing to pick up a 200 pound pumpkin than i was then <laughs> so
0: i love that you i love that you group <laughs> 200 pound pumpkins that's awesome <laughs>
1: so our, our gardening I, my wife Kathy and I uh, enjoy gardening a lot both flowers and vegetables we love to eat right out of the garden and we started with a plot of land here that was not very big but it got smaller and smaller and, and but it was it needed it needed killing and all of these things and I, i'm not sure how much your listeners are following Uh, climate change and the things that ground and soil have to do with uh, the changes of climate change. And that began to make a lot of sense. So rather than plowing up land every every year, several years ago, we started um, uh, raised bed gardening. Uh And that's where we are now. And done well, I can raise as many vegetables as many vegetables how do I want to put this? I can raise my vegetables better, better (laughs) vegetables. There we go. I can raise better vegetables and raise bread on a third of the space than I could when I had them in the garden. And I have almost no weeding and I'm not releasing carbon into the atmosphere. and, And my chickens love strutting around and eating the bugs.
0: Nice. It sounds like a really wonderful place to uh, not work too hard. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So let's talk about your new book, co-written by you and Stephanie Bruneau. Among other things, it explores, like you mentioned earlier, options for different kinds of hives. There's Warré, Langstroth, and Top Bar, which I think most people are, if they're beekeepers or know about bees, they're familiar with those. But there are other types uh, that you mentioned that aren't as common, like skeps, which I think are illegal in some places, and this thing called lay-ins hives, which I've never heard of. L-A-Y-E-N, lay-ins. And what are those, and what are the benefits? Well,
1: probably um, the top bar hive, of course, is horizontal instead of vertical. Mm-hmm. And, and bees actually adapt to that pretty well, but that's a second choice. Given a first choice, I'll go back to that cavity in the tree, and they would they would prefer to put their combs, you know, long, uh, the whole length of the cavity, the whole depth of the cavity, and use the, keep the outside combs relatively empty so that they could keep the inside combs well insulated. The land's hive is actually somewhat similar to that in that it's a cavity. Uh, It is not well insulated. And now I begin to, I'm going to guess that there are models on the on the Available that are insulated. I don't know of any, but you could easily insulate permanently one of those boxes and leave it that way. And for all intents and purposes, all beehives should be insulated. A tree trunk doesn't shed its insulation in the spring, and and a beehive shouldn't shed, doesn't need to shed its insulation in the spring either. And that goes with all of the ones you just mentioned uh, the Langstroth and, and all of the rest. You can and, and and there are hives available for, uh, from a number of outlets, styrofoam and other kinds of uh, insulated material that are insulated year-round. And from a bee's perspective, in the winter, it's cold outside and they have to keep that cavity warm. And in the summer, it's hot outside and they have to keep that cavity cool. There's a very small range of temperatures that that brood can be inside and do well and thrive. And And it's work to keep it warm, work to keep it, cool and if you can keep it about the same temperature year-round life just got real simple
0: Mm -hmm. now I remember looking through the book when when I was reading it that there were some types of beehives that that have you know kind of almost two inch thick walls they're really thick is that can that be done with a lay-ins hive or is that you probably you
1: probably could yes um and and some of the people have adapted their uh non-langstroth hives or even their langstroth hives Uh, to much thicker wood. And Mm -hmm. and of course, if you've got an R factor of two versus one half, it's going to be better. And that goes somewhat towards, not all the way, but somewhat towards uh, keeping that interior space at a reasonable temperature year-round.
0: Yeah. In the book, you share ways to help bees thrive in their local environment. And I love the name of this chapter. It's called More Real Estate Decisions. (laughs) <laughs> these are these are things people need to consider when they're setting up their hives. So, can you share some of those suggestions for h- helping bees stay healthy?
1: Well, in this day and age, our biggest problem with bees is our pesticides. There's no doubt about that. And and uh, it, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's difficult to find a place to put bees that fly somewhere near two miles from their hive looking for food, that there isn't some sort of agriculture or some sort of uh, park or golf course or homeowner's lawn that doesn't have some level of uh, some kind of pesticide in it. If you've got pure grass and you have no wildflowers in it, The pesticide that you put on there to keep the flowers away, the herbicides and the pesticides you put on there to keep the grass healthy isn't going to bother bees because they won't go there. There's nothing to attract them. Mm -hmm. But your neighbor's lawn next door Mm -hmm. uh, with the dandelions in the spring and the clover in the summer and the little weeds in the the summer and fall probably is going to have some uh, contact with that, be exposed to that somewhat. Agriculture, of course, is there's there's no other way to say this other than basically agriculture is toxic agriculture is meant farmers are intent on and the world needs bugs not to eat our food right <laughs> yeah and 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 that that makes pretty much every crop out there exposed to some level of toxic compound at some time in the year most of the yeah. time, farmers aim to not have that happen. They apply it when when the bees aren't going to be there, when there's no blossoms. They try to keep the weeds between the rows and on the field edges at a minimum. I wish it was 100%. Uh, I have farmed, as I said, for for some time, and I grew soybeans and corn and row crop vegetables and sweet corn and apples, and it's, it's tough to do, yeah, to, to be perfect. So... If you're choosing a place to put bees and you have some options, how far away can you get from a farm? Right. That's the start. The other one is, how far away can you get from places like golf clubs and city parks and those sorts of places that are also treated with uh, these toxins? And the list of places to put bees that reach both of those uh, conditions becomes very, very short.
0: It works in urban environments if we if you're in a city and I know that there are cities in Canada and I think in California, where they have prohibited pesticide and Roundup uh, applications in city and state parks, but not every place is like that so
1: well, uh, the other thing is, if you're in an urban area, your exposure to pesticides is going to be minimum, not zero, but minimum mm-hmm. because There's some lawn stuff out there, but there aren't huge fields of sweet corn being sprayed. There aren't, you know, lots of uh, soybeans being sprayed. Those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other side of that coin is: is there anything out there to spray? Uh, You know, uh, is there food available for your bees? And and a study done in Cornell quite a few years ago figured out, and and my experience pretty much supports this that a colony of bees needs about an acre of bloom blooming all year round to survive now you put bees in the middle of new york city on a roof someplace and going out two yard or two miles there's an acre out there you put 400 colonies on that roof and then you begin to run into issues with too many bees and not enough food so it it gets to be a dance that beekeepers um are all doing almost everywhere
0: Right, and that leads me to my next question, which is to feed or not to feed. Do you and your co-author share the same opinion about feeding hives, or did you differ on that?
1: I don't feed. Mm-hmm. Neither um, do I. By the way, I don't either. <laughs> Good. I, uh, I I'm I don't keep bees for the honey, and and all all my bees get all of the honey that they make and if there's any left over in the spring that they haven't eaten from last year it gets saved for next year and i have a, a old freezer in the garage that i can simply throw these i can fill i can put i can put almost 200 frames in this freezer
0: oh that's so, unusual i have never heard that before okay clever idea
1: <laughs> so if you can pick up one of those old freezers it's going to cost you a little bit to run it but the advantages, in my opinion, are I'm feeding bees food that they collected, A. Right. I'm feeding bees food that is as natural as it can get, B. And C, it doesn't cost me hardly anything to feed them all of this natural food. Having that much food um, saved over winter for two colonies begins to question you know, how smart are you really? You got 200 frames in there. You got two colonies. Let's see, that's uh, about 20 frames you're going to need next spring. What am I going to do with the other 180? Well, <laughs> believe it or not, I have friends who can use that honey. And and they know my, I don't treat my hives. So there's no toxins in my hives. Um, they know that the frames that they can get from me are going to be as good as you can get compared to where my bees are. I can see soybeans from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. Or I can see where soybeans are going to be. So I know that there's some level of toxins, but not so many that oh well, there's what can I do?
0: Right? You there's know? not much you can do,
1: right.
0: And so honey is the best thing to feed them, But then I just saw something recently what that was like, don't feed them, honey. I, I help me out on this one. What's the best thing to feed them?
1: i'll I'll go <laughs> back to. There's two schools of thought here, mm-hmm. and, and, and I go by the school of thought that says if bees made honey and collected pollen and stored it in comb, they did that because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. They are expected to collect that. They feed it to their young. Their young continue the generations of bees into next season, and that's what bees have been doing longer than we've been here.
0: That's right. They,
1: they got something right.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do.
1: But there's another school of thought. And that's that school of thought is, is what can we do to enhance their diet? And looking at what they're eating and where you live and those sorts of things, there may be some parts of their diet that could use some reinforcement. And and I'm thinking of, I'm not thinking of the sugars that are in honey, but perhaps the, one of the things that we're just beginning to learn about is the The gut system of a honeybee. What's in a honeybee's gut that it takes to digest these foods? And in the perfect world, those organisms live there year round and and do just fine. Thank you. They're exchanged between bees in a hive. So the population is relatively stable. And that's the way it should be. But because of the things that bees are running into in the environment outside of the hive and outside of their natural world, some of those organisms in their guts are beginning to be stressed. So can I help that? If I believe that my bees are suffering from an inability to digest or digest well all of the food that they're collecting, yes. And some beekeepers do, and there are some products on the market that are not toxic to bees, not toxic to honey, not toxic to people, but enhance or supply new organisms that help bees digest this food. So when it comes to what I feed bees, what I feed bees, the other thing that I will put into a bees um, uh, environment is essentially a, a neon light sign that says, here's good food. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a product on the, on the market called honey, be healthy. And it's just some, some enzymes and, and uh, it's natural stuff, but it has an odor. And if you're giving your bees water, which you should be doing, no matter where you live, uh-huh. if you've got a pond out back, there's that pond to clean, would you drink out of that pond? <laughs> And the answer is probably no, and therefore you should be supplying water for your bees. So when I put water out for my bees, uh, I'm going to put a little bit of that honey bee healthy in there, so when a bee finds it, she finds water, she says, she takes it back to the hive, and she says, here friends, this is water, and this is what it smells like, and it's right over there. So I know that she's able to train these bees quite easily. They know where it is, and they know what it tastes like, and what it smells like, and I can train them to pure, clean water today. Mm -hmm. Rather than hoping to find that that pond in your neighbor's backyard that may or may not dry up this summer.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. It is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? Well,
1: (laughs) this is a big tip. Okay. And and I know you told me about this some time ago and I've been trying to nail this down and, and there's a lot of little tips that apply to me and not to you, to you and not to me, to the people out in Colorado and not to the people in New Jersey. But the big tip that that I think if people, if anybody that's dealing with bees can absorb, if it's good for the bees, it's probably not good for the beekeeper. And if it's good for the beekeeper, it's probably not good for the bees. Evaluate everything you do by that standard, and your bees will thrive.
0: That's a good tip. <laughs> I think it's true. We've made it so that it's convenient for us to keep bees. But bees would much rather be in a cylindrical enclosed space that only they have access to. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what we haven't talked about is varroa mites. Um, oh. <laughs> let's just talk about that really briefly before we sign off. Um, Varroa mites are the, you label them as an enemy number one. And I know for me with a feral hive, I don't treat for varroa mites and they seem to be doing just fine on their own. And a lot of people have, uh, I think Michael Bush's research was uh, found that if you treat, then they become less resilient to varroa mites. And, you know, there's a lot of science behind that, but what is your approach to dealing with that?
1: Varroa mites came to the U.S. just about the same day that I started running uh, Bee Culture magazine 30 plus years ago, and I have been dealing with it ever since, and I have (laughs) gone through all of the research of putting stuff in a hive that will kill mites and not bees, and that's been the battle. How can you kill a little bug on a big bug without hurting the big bug, and you can't. it took me. It took me a long time. I grew up doing research, and 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 I grew up looking at the science of all of the things on bees and beekeeping. And it I, at, at a point here about seven or eight years ago, I took three steps back, and then I took three steps more back, and I said, "I'm tired of putting poison in a beehive." And and okay, how am I going to make this happen? Because at that time that was the only way you could keep bees alive. I thought, Mm -hmm. well, there are things that you can do that do not require you putting poison in a beehive. And I have not put poison in a beehive in years and years. And how I do that is by letting bees be bees. What do bees do? Well, they swarm. Mm -hmm. I can kind of replicate swarming in a beehive by making a divide. And having both the colony that I take the divide from and the divide that I take from that colony remain queenless for a period of time so that there are no eggs, there is no brood, and there are no places for varroa to replicate. I am constantly searching for bees that have some tolerance, some resistance, some some way of dealing with a varroa population that doesn't let it get it out of hand. And those bees exist. Mm -hmm. It's not 100%. But you take bees with some resistance, and you take natural swarming, and you take queenless periods and broodless periods, and you put all of those together, and suddenly things got easier for the bees, but not so much for the beekeeper. But that's okay.
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, I just wanted to interject that it's very similar in gardening, where we don't want to we don't want to eradicate the pests that are in the garden. We just want to reduce the population so that the plants can outgrow it, basically. Yep.
1: Yeah, exactly. Being able to do that, being able to do all of those things, bees naturally swarm and making a a division of a colony that replicates a swarm at the right time of the year uh, and then letting them raise their queen. One of the things that I try to do that I'm not terribly successful with is I don't have control uh, within the flight range of my hives of other bees, bees and trees, other beekeepers like that. So my when my colonies are creating new queens those they will create they will raise a queen that virgin queen will eventually fly out and mate with a drone and she's going to mate with drones that she finds in drone congregating areas that are a mile mile and a half from me i don't know who's out there (laughs) so so the the selections that i've done for resistance or tolerance are somewhat stressed that way. I don't have control of who those queens mate with. But I'll tell you, the thing that that happens is that after um, a season of that queen being mated, I can take a look at the Varroa population in that colony compared to Varroa populations in other colonies, and I can say she mated with somebody that really doesn't have any tolerance at all for Varroa or loves Vera one of the two and I can take that genetics out of my system and supplement it with one that has uh, deals with Varroa better
0: okay that's that takes a lot of uh, inspection I imagine you how often do you inspect
1: every time I go out okay i I, I don't I don't um, what I've done over the years the, the 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 suggestion is to take a half a Half a cup of bees and use the alcohol wash and, and that should give you a count of bees, mites per hundred bees. Um, and I've t- taken that down to two tablespoons full of bees. And, and I know that it's not as accurate, but I know how accurate it is after several years of doing this. So I can look at those two tablespoons of bees and any or some mites and that half a cup of bees and any or some mites and know that my tablespoon is lower than it should be, more than it should be, or about where it should be. And I'm pretty confident. And and my success kind of points in that direction.
0: Got it. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Kim, thank you so much for being a guest on the Gardener Tip of the Week podcast.
1: Well, it's been fun. I always like talking bees and a little bit about gardens.
0: Yeah. Well, where do people find you?
1: Well, one of the things I do in my spare time now that I'm retired. Mm-hmm. Is is um I'm co-host on a couple of podcasts about bees and beekeeping, believe it or not. One of them today is called Beekeeping Today Podcast.com. And you can go to that webpage, page www.beekeepingtodaypodcast.com And in that podcast, I work with my co-host, a fellow named Jeff Ott, who's out in Washington. So he's got a West Coast flavor out there. And what we do in that podcast is we try and find uh beekeepers or scientists or regulators or politicians, people who have influence in what's going on in the world of bees and beekeeping. We also do some practical how-to stuff. We have uh, beekeepers all over the U.S. that we talk to on a regular basis, but we try to aim for the people who are making decisions or are making inventions to make our life better.
0: All right. What's the other one?
1: It's called Honeybee Obscura. And during my time as editor of Bee Culture Magazine, one of our writers the whole time I was there was Dr. Jim Tu, and he was the extension specialist for beekeeping for the Ohio State University, and he lives just on the road from me here in Worcester, Ohio. And we have been friends for over 30 years, and we very commonly will get together for supper or lunch someday and sit and talk bees. And that's what we do on okay. this honey bee obscure. We'll sit and talk bees. We pick a topic and and talk about experiences we've had in the past, or what do you think about, or what could we do, or what could we do better? And and a lot of it's how to because that's what that's what beekeepers talk about. And it's it's short, sweet, and to the point. And we have a lot of fun doing it. And I think you'll probably pick up a lot of good beekeeping information by listening in.
0: It sounds like a fun rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, Garden Nerds, you'll find links to, I'm going to put a link to Kim's Amazon author page so you can see all the great books he's written at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share his writing on Bee Culture Magazine on that website, and we'll share his links to the podcasts. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at GardenNerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on GardenNerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under GardenNerd1, on Facebook as GardenNerd.com, and of course, our GardenNerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!